This is Cushion Disappointment, and as you can tell by the episode title, the definition of crush has got very loose now. Some might say too loose, so to compensate for that, there's quite a lot of chat about millennial disappointment at the end of this episode, which um, I guess is on brand, if not a little self-indulgent on my part. There's also quite a lot of food recommendations in this episode. I'll whack those in the description if anyone's interested. But yeah, here we go. This is episode eight. I'm chatting to Hannah about her crush on spaghetti. So the Huffington Post in the article, <laughs> food and love, how are they linked in the brain? <laughs> food and love are inexorably linked thanks to a complex hormonal reaction that affects our emotional attachments to loved ones and our need for food. Does that reflect your experience with spaghetti? I'm going to say yes. Well, maybe. I re- one of my earliest food memories is being sort of two or three years old and being fed a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs by my dad that my mum had made. And I must have been really young. And that's like my one of my first memories and definitely my first food memory. So maybe that's there. Well, so I'm going to keep going back to my quote. So from... Wikipedia, their definition of comfort food, mm. is comfort food is food that provides a nostalgic or sentimental value to someone and may be characterised by its high caloric <laughs> nature, high carbohydrate level, or simple preparation. The nostalgia may be specific to an individual, or it may apply to a specific culture. I think when I was thinking about comfort food, nostalgia didn't strike me as being like the main component, but I guess when you think about it more, it probably is. Right? Really? I thought that was always, that's like a really obvious thing. That is to do with nostalgia. I just kind of thought it was just hearty, I think, was the, the, <laughs> the only sort of connection. I guess I don't really have any connections with food. What, when you were growing up, was that always like a go-to meal? No, it was like my mum can't cook. And my dad, I remember him cooking once and he did a stew. And he got so hot that he sweated in it. <laughs> oh, that's so gross. And that's, that's my only recollection of food. I mean, my grandma used to make a really good apple pie. So I guess that's... The only sort of connection where I guess I could taste that and sort of be transported back to being young. And do you like apple pie now? Yeah. I mean, I prefer. To, I think people who like crumble are monstrous people because apple pie is just better, isn't it? I think they're pretty equal. <laughs> <laughs> do you find that the pleasure from spaghetti is only from eating it or do you get it from cooking it as well? Um, both, because I like to pretend that I am in Italy in a little apartment in Rome. Or by the coast, cooking my little spaghetti. Are you good at cooking? I'm okay at cooking. I'm not bad. I'm a better eater than I am a cooker. <laughs> I would always prefer to go out and eat somewhere else mm-hmm. most of the time, unless I'm really poor. And was have you always been a food person thanks to your that memory of spaghetti and meatballs? I don't know. I became interested in restaurants probably when I was about 21. But I had... I had grown up around good food. Mm. My mum is a really good cook and my dad, I mean, is an average cook. He's not bad. <laughs> but apart from this one meal that he used to make us, which was literally cheese grated onto a plate and then you put some milk on and then you put it in the microwave and then that was dinner. That sounds Just awful. like cheesy milk on a plate. <laughs> um, but I've got loads of nostalgic memories to do with that. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a good dish, but... Did your parents teach you how to cook or...? Not... Really, I guess I just learned from observing and also I have a really good palate mm-hmm. because we used to play this game when we were younger, which was just like guess the ingredient. So every single meal, every single dinner, me and my brother would always try and guess every single ingredient in there, mm-hmm. which means that 
I, you just know how to put flavors together and how yeah. much of things should go in things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, pasta is not, I mean, most of my diet is spaghetti <laughs> and pasta, which is the easiest thing. But then it's not that bad because you can put loads of vegetables in it if you want. Do you, you recall school dinners? Did you enjoy those? Yeah. I have primary school dinners. Not at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't really eat that much in primary school, I think. And I have a massive phobia of baked beans, which definitely stems from there. Okay. Like, I feel nauseous if I smell baked beans. I think they're absolutely disgusting. So what happened with the baked beans at school? Well, you know, did you ever have those two trays where when people had finished their meal but they hadn't eaten all the food, they would just scrape off whatever they had left into these trays? Yeah. And it was always full of baked beans <laughs> and it stank. Yeah. And it's just scarred me for life so i can't stand it the opposite of a comfort food yeah a nightmare food <laughs> that's what that is and my brother loves them as well so i think growing up with him having them all the time and associating them with that really powerful memory mm. grim so from zagat have you heard of zagat yeah the restaurant reviews um so according to their survey 60 percent of avid diners across the u.s say they browse food photos on social media and among them, 75% say they've picked a place to eat based on these photos alone. Next quote, Steve Zagor, or so all the Zags, there's definitely a focus on looks rather than taste, and if you're lucky, both exist simultaneously. Basically saying that Instagram has changed the way that people consume food. Is this the case for you? Um, I don't think so. I read quite a lot of food reviews and look at hot dinners a lot mm-hmm. to find out where I want to eat. And I also know... I know a lot of good restaurants, so when they compare them to other restaurants that I like, it's quite easy to pick out where I'd like to eat. Mm -hmm. Also, I have cultivated a group of people who are also quite into food and we give each other good recommendations. Word of mouth recommendations is probably mostly... Although Instagram is good for if you follow certain restaurants and chefs that you know you like, you can see when they're doing collaborations or when they're opening up new places. Mm -hmm. That's really useful. But it's not really a case of just looking at something and being like, oh, that's pretty. I want to go and eat there mm-hmm. because it could be shit. <laughs> how, so say I decided that I wanted to suddenly become a foodie. How do I find out who chefs are that I like? What do I? Because my, my thing at the moment is I tend to I tend to go chain more than anything. Like if, I, if I'm walking around somewhere and I see a GBK, I'm like, I pretty much know what I'm going to get oh, if I go into no. a GBK. GBK is not even the best burger uh, which one's place. So, okay, the best burger places are Patty and Bun. I've never even heard of them. Brilliant burgers. Oh. There are a few of those as well around. Meat liquor is also decent. Honest burger is fine. However, terrible veggie burgers. Is this like an onion bhaji in bread? I've got a massive issue with veggie burgers. <laughs> okay, so most places they're really awful because they're like a fritter. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like a bhaji type thing or a fritter in bread. And the whole point, the reason why a burger is good is because it's there's loads of moisture in it. Mm-hmm. You have the meat and the cheese and then it's kind of liquidy. And then if you're putting a fritter in the middle of two pieces of bread, it's never going to be good. It's just going to be dry and gross. Mm -hmm. But Patty and Bun apparently have a really good veggie one. And also there's that place called Big Fernand, which is like French burgers. Their meat ones, I don't know what they're like, but their veggie ones are really good. Some of the best veggie ones I've eaten. They do like mushroom and also aubergine. That's what you want. That's got all the moisture in it that you'd like. Have you heard about the Impossible Burger? No, what's this? So I've been following it for quite a while, waiting for it to come over. So in the US, some science people have made, uh, I think, vegan, certainly vegetarian burger, which bleeds like meat. But basically, I quite like that. 
apparently it's who they give it to they, there was a video i think of jeremy clarkson eating one and he couldn't tell the difference and i felt like he would be the sort of person who wouldn't um want it to taste the same perhaps. that's impressive because most veggie or vegan meat substitutes is very easy to tell that they're not mm. meat i would definitely like that because the things that i miss most are like rare burgers and rare steaks mm. about not eating meat I think, um, corn mince is okay because it's like just it's like, really soggy. Yeah. If you're not fine. It goes if you cook it in anything, it just subs, just goes soggy. It doesn't have any of the texture of mince. Maybe I just haven't got that sophisticated palate. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> this delicious mush. Yeah, like, I can't tell the difference. Or the um, I've quite like Linda McCartney's frozen burgers. I think they're pretty good. The mozzarella ones. I haven't had their burgers. I think her sausages taste like cardboard, though. Okay, big fan of those as well. <laughs> <laughs> but the cauldron, cauldron sausages are really nice. The veggie sausages. Mm-hmm. They're not vegan though. They've got milk in them. But on the Instagram thing, it's interesting how, as we know today, the idea of food becoming more visual and you have these like um, massive burgers that you can't fit in your mouth or like there's a donut place around the corner, I don't know if you walk past it, which is like selling donuts for like a fiver. Uh, but they're like oh. mega with like, I don't know, brownies and shit on Why top. Why would you want that if you can't physically eat it? <laughs> that sounds awful. It's, yeah, but a bizarre trend of the social media presence, I guess, of the impact that's had. I feel like the people who get taken in by that kind of thing don't really know about food as mm-hmm. well. If you're someone who does go out to eat at a lot of restaurants, you're, that kind of thing is not going to impress you. Mm. You know what you're looking for when you see a picture of something. But I definitely know how that kind of thing works, especially having worked on MasterChef. When, so in the production office, there's a screen and we can see um, when people are cooking. And... A lot of the time it's like, that looks amazing. They've done so well. And then the judges taste it and they're like, this is grim. <laughs> this has not been done well. And yeah. you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm sure that's the difficulty of doing like food programs on TV is it is all visual. Like how do you convey mm. yeah. sort of the taste of it, I guess? You have to have a focus on the cooking methods mm-hmm. and show what mistakes people are making and what impressive things they're doing for that to come across. Do you like... Your cooking shows with <laughs> uh, purely food-based, or do you like, for example, dinner date with the the mix of dating and cooking? I mainly watch food shows focused on restaurants or chefs. I don't watch cooking shows or much like reality-based TV. Mm-hmm. So stuff like Chef's Table, Ugly Delicious, Cheers david chang's series but it's so the first one's on pizza and the second one's on tacos and it's a, a food subject that he's exploring okay. stuff like that i find more interesting stuff to do with food cultures how food has evolved specific cutting edge restaurants how they're pushing mm-hmm. the restaurant industry that kind of thing and when you say like pushing boundaries is that like on Cake Boss when they make a really fucking big cake because like you can't make that at home or is it like what's the boundary that can be pushed in cooking well I probably would watch just that for <laughs> but more for like the novelty factor of it <laughs> but so there's this restaurant in Brighton called Silo <laughs> and it's the first the first waste free restaurant <laughs> so the dishes are made using all of whatever like vegetable they have so if they have carrots they will use the stems um, like all the peel, oh, wow. like the actual, of also the body of the carrot. Mm-hmm. They have like an incredible composting system. 
that does everything from food waste and just stuff that gets dropped on the floor as well. And then that goes back into fields that... I thought you were going to say the food then. I was, going to, I was going to get really upset. <laughs> yeah, and then they have these really good relationships with their suppliers and things like that. So that kind of thing, that's super, super interesting. And then there's Dan Barber in New York who has a restaurant called Blue Hill Farm. And he is working a lot with farmers to make... It's like making the most carrot-tasting carrot that you've ever (laughs) eaten. So there's loads of genetically modifying stuff to make more of it, to make bigger versions of it, to sell for like mass consumption or like for like poverty-related things, how we can make more of this more most efficiently. But he's working with those people instead to find out how you can just make something taste really intense Mm -hmm. and also stuff to do with bread. So most of our bread doesn't taste of, the wheat anymore mm-hmm. we don't actually know what bread tastes like it's just from a bag in tesco um and he's doing loads of stuff to get back at what bread used to taste like what it what the possibility is of some bread tasting like because for us it's like quite a boring thing mm-hmm. but it could be incredible so he's doing loads of stuff on that so that kind of thing yeah. is what i'm interested in would you i don't take a holiday to brighton specifically to go to a restaurant is that what navigates your trips maybe i haven't so recently in February was the first time that I went somewhere that I'd never been to before purposely to go to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So I went to Whitstable to go to the Sportsman, um, which was great. But I probably I would go to Brighton to go to Silo, but then Brighton's quite close. It's easy to get to. I'd have other things to do there. Mm-hmm. There is one restaurant that I really want to go to called Moor Hall in Lancashire but I physically just can't get there because I don't drive I don't have a car and it's like the middle of Lancashire so what's so special about that restaurant so it's only opened last year and it was so there's a restaurant called Long Clume in Cumbria which is two Michelin stars Mm -hmm. and the head chef called Mark Birchall opened this new restaurant called Moor Hall and it got a star within a few months of opening last year when the guide came out they got a star straight away is that not and common? not really no not in the first year mm. and i think they're pushing for two but they are also very like using the environment around them and the farms which isn't an unusual thing mm. in restaurants these days but because all of these people are like it's it's just open it's incredible it's just like what are they doing there i want to taste it i want to see what they're doing mm. but i'm also interested in food that is not fine dining aid. That's not like all I eat. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's just so different to, it's just a world I know nothing about. Mm. Like you just like rattling off names of all these different places, all the different things. I wouldn't even know where to begin. I've never been given a, a recommendation of a place. What do you like? What do you like to eat? I do, I do eat a lot of spaghetti because it's so easy. Like I just sort of get home, put a bit of whole wheat spaghetti in. Do some spaghetti recommendations? Yeah. So, have you heard of Padella? No. So that's probably one of the best places in the UK at the moment for pasta. And it's in Newcastle? No, it's in Borough Market. <laughs> okay. Um, it opened, it won the Evening Standard Best Cheap Eats and possibly the one of the Guardian, I don't know if it won the Guardian Best Cheap Eats, but it won the um, Evening Standard one a couple of years ago. And it's really affordable. It's the sister restaurant of Trollo in Islington which is meant to be good as well, but Padella's better, I think. You can't book, so you have to queue. But 
in the evenings, you can just go put your phone number down and then leave and they call you back. But that, I would definitely, rec- that would be on my top, top of my list to go to. I don't, I mean, queuing puts me right off. Like, the Breakfast Club is <laughs> often a queue and I just, I look at those oh, people like... so overrated, the uh, Breakfast Club as well. They're such schmucks <laughs> queuing, queuing outside the Breakfast Club. Oh, I guess we'd both be shaking our heads at them, but me, just because I just don't understand queuing for food, <laughs> it just seems like... Well, it's worth Impedella, but if you want a non-queuing one, there's a place called Flower and Grape in Bermondsey, okay. which is really nice. And then... A place I really want to go to but haven't yet is Campania and Jones, which is in possibly Clerkenwell. I'm not sure where it is. Don't quote me on that. But Flower and Grape, Campania and Jones. And there's a place called Pastaya, which is opened in Soho by Stevie Parlour. But I don't think that's as good as the other ones, but it's probably better than... What, what you've been eating well, so far. Well, so, so say um, we've, we get, I go to all those places, I bring you a bowl from each of them, all the different spaghetti, somehow they're, they're all still warm. And one of the bowls is my spaghetti that I've made with a bit of Dolmio. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and no. Some cor- and some corn mix. Do you actually use Dolmio? Yeah, it's a bit of Dolmio, the smooth Dolmio. I find it really sugary. I have massively sugary stuff, like I have like chocolate cereal and everything like that. Mate. But you need to get off that sugar hype. Yeah, I've, it's really. I think my energy levels are all over the place. But um, yes, yeah, so I put those four like, next to each other. I'm assuming you'd be able to tell the difference. Yeah, the dolmio would taste like shit. <laughs> but what? <laughs> say I was having it. What would be? What would jump out at me as being better? The dolmio would definitely taste more synthetic and sugary, mm-hmm. and you would be able to taste that really easily. Also, the pasta quality would taste very different because. In these other places, they put, like, using fresh pasta, fresh egg pasta, which just has a different consistency than what you're cooking in your own home. Also, the sauces, because they're not all, like, tomato sauces. There might be, like, a ricotta and butter one or something. Mm -hmm. You would just be able to taste it. Probably the subtlety of the dishes. Mm Mm-hmm. And all the elements would just complement each other better rather than whole wheat spaghetti and a dolmio sauce. <laughs> and the mushy mince, uh, corn mince. And the mushy corn mince. I'll take you on a pasta tour. Yeah. We can go around them <laughs> and then you can you can widen your horizons. I feel like, I guess my dial is so far off. I don't know what it would take to get me back on track. You would, you would just be able to tell really easily that mm. it was better. I think just as human beings... You're just like, this thing objectively tastes better than this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's not, especially with pasta, it's not something that's challenging. Mm-hmm. When you get to a high level, there will be people like, this is gross. And some people being like, this is incredible. Because it is a more challenging food, you have to have a more adapted palate to things. So like, I'm not a massive fan of aniseedy flavors, things like fennel and tarragon. But my friend Lilia, who's a chef, loves that flavour profile. So she would be like, this is incredible. And I'd be like, oh, I'm not that bothered about it. I think tarragon is the only herb I have in my cupboard. The worst. Okay. The worst of the herbs. <laughs> it goes in my in my uh, mashed potato. Put tarragon in your potato. Yeah. Interesting. My cottage pie is about the only meal that I can. I mean, I, you've crippled all my senses that I could cook well. But before today, I just said that my cottage pie was my only good meal that I could do. But um, maybe that's the way around it. Because I was, I was thinking that to improve the, what I'm eating... I need to start making food. But maybe actually it's the other way around. I need to improve my palate. And then the stuff that I'm eating now will taste like shit. And that will force me. Yeah. To, like, uh, to, um, I used to have the Tesco orange juice that's in the 
you know, the one in the like cards. the long life, long life yeah, ratios. Yeah, yeah. Used to like that's what we used to have at home, and used to love that shit. Then went to uni, had a mate who had like the pure, like, amazing stuff. Started drinking that. Couldn't go back to the original one because it tasted like piss. It's really easy mm-hmm. for you to get used to nice things. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's better though. Maybe it's better that I keep myself grounded. <laughs> And don't set my expectations too high. It's an expensive habit. Mm. I do spend all of my money on restaurants. <laughs> but like, our, the food I was speaking of was my food memories, my comfort food. I'd go to Wingwa and have the lemon chicken. And they like they knew me in there. And it was pretty exciting. They gave me a, um, a thing to hang on my door. And I remember being really excited by it. But then I looked at the back and it had their like phone number on it. And I was <laughs> really upset because I thought they'd give me a gift rather than a marketing thing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they um, used to go get that lemon chicken, get it home, watch some Ugly Betty while eating lemon chicken in bed. And that's, that's probably my comfort food. That's memory. a super nostalgic memory, yeah. the Ugly Betty. But it was like every Friday. And it just sort of, it was like the end of the week, time to like relax. I think that's okay. It's okay to eat some... So we often get an Indian takeaway from down the road from where we are now, which is... It's not that it tastes bad, it's just that it is hideously inconsistent. So I usually get the Madras and sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's... I literally cannot eat it because it is so spicy. (laughs) Then sometimes it has like loads of onions in it out of nowhere and then sometimes it's literally a sauce and some prawns. Oh, but it's it's not very good but I think that's fine to have every so often as long as that's not the only thing you're eating and then in your head that becomes normal as long as you know it's like a slightly because loads of things aren't that good but taste really good if something's got loads of MSG in it it's not going to be good but it's going to taste good I don't think I could tell the difference between a takeaway madras and a restaurant madras yeah that's because you would probably have to know the nuances of that food culture to know about that more. Whereas something like pasta is really an easy entry point into knowing more about food because it's something you will have a wider framework of what you understand. The context of pasta. So it sounds like I need to go on a course. <laughs> no, you just need to eat more. That's it. If you, What did you like about the lemon chicken from Wingwa? What did I like about it? I kind of liked that, there was, that the portion was too big. And I'd be a bit, I'd be like so full at the end. It was kind of like having a hug and it was like a warm hug while I'm in bed. So not actually about the food, just about how you feel afterwards. Uh, yeah. And I kind of liked the stickiness of the rice. Okay. I liked the flavour of the sauce. I mean, I imagine you describe it as synthetic. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it was quite goopy, the sauce, when you like sort of put it on. That probably had loads of MSG in it. That's yeah. probably why you like it. Yeah. So I'm just hooked. You need to get, um, for, my flatmates whose birthday last week, one of our other friends got him just like a bag full of MSG stock cubes. Oh my God. Just put, just put MSG in your meal. Make it taste nice. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? I don't even know what that actually does to the food. It's like this chemical that it is the taste of moorishness. Like, you know, when you have this sweet Thai chili sensations and then you have to eat the whole packet. Mm-hmm. It's that. It's what makes you keep eating. Right. So that's just what MSG is. And then there was a long time when there was sort of a big campaign to stop it being put in food because people are like, oh, it's just a chemical. It doesn't, it's not real. What's it doing to our bodies? And then they found out it has no effect on your body. It, oh. It's completely fine to eat. Is it like, I don't know, do you put on weight from it or like? Well, I guess if you eat, end up eating more, but 
that's it. It doesn't do anything. But it's in loads of like Chinese restaurants and that kind of thing. Put yeah. it in there. But it's fine. It's fine for you. Yeah. I mean, do you have particular do you call them types of food or cultures of food or countries? There's what's the word that, I would, that I'm looking for? Yeah. Yeah. All of the cuisines. Of cuisine. Different types of cuisine that you're into. Or does that fluctuate? Do you have like a year where you're really into Chinese food and you won't eat anything else, and then you can't stand it afterwards? I have really got into. Burmese food, which is so delicious. What does that consist of? It's like sort of between Indian, Thai and Malaysian, but with its own flavour profile. So it's really spicy. It's super spicy. But I have a friend whose family is from Myanmar and she took me to a Burmese restaurant in London Fields and it was just so good. They use a lot of like shrimp pastes and they have noodles and they have like chickpea crackers and that kind of thing. So the use of chickpeas and that kind of thing is more Indian, but then their curries are kind of similar to a laksa. So that's a bit Malaysian. And then they have a lot of flavors of Thai food as well. But it's just really good and really spicy. In terms of spice, I'm getting better at it. It used to be a bizarre, like, I think like masculinity thing where I'd like want to order the hot one. Even though I didn't particularly like hot, it became like a thing where I felt like I had to do it. (laughs) <laughs> and then I would just not enjoy my food. But I think because of that, I've actually got better at eating spicy food. I mean, I'm not good by any stretch of the imagination, but... Um, How do you feel about sriracha? I don't know what that is. It's a spicy sort of spicy Vietnamese sauce. Is it like a paste? No, no. it's like in a bottle. Oh, okay. But they have two strengths. They have one with the green lid on, which is the weak one, and one with the red lid on, which is a spicier one. And I never used to be able to eat the red one, and now... That's all I eat. I can't have the green one, but that's a good way to. I mean, I think we might be talking higher than my level. I was thinking more <laughs> that I've gone from lemon and herb to medium. Uh, right, Nando's. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan of Nando's. No, Nando's is actually what made me stop eating meat mm. because I saw it was like one too many chicken breast, and it was tiny, and you could see its tiny ribs, and I just thought this chicken has had an awful life. Mm-hmm. I don't want to eat anything that we have made go through a life like that for us to eat. And then that was it. I just stopped eating meat from then. Yeah. I mean, the halloumi wrap's pretty good, though, Nando's. Pretty, pretty chips also. Yeah. They're not bad. I'm all about the free sides. I like to get chips, mash, and rice. Mmm. I used to be really into the mash and the macho peas. But I also haven't been there since. I think I would still like those dishes, but I would actually feel bad going there because I know that they're meat quality is so low mm-hmm. and then i just be like I don't want to give this company money they used to be my favourite when I was 10 I don't remember Nando's even being about when I was 10 there was one where my cousins used to live in Romford <laughs> so in like the shopping centre <laughs> there's a bowling alley and there was a Nando's and every time we went to visit them we all used to go and get like 20 chicken wings between like 6 of those small children so that was a comfort food memory Yes, I suppose it was. That's a good link. <laughs> but, that, but that's been destroyed now by the mm. food industry. Yes. Has it tainted that memory now when you look at that? Do you hate yourself eating those chicken wings when you see it? Not really. It kind of exists outside of the realm of the enjoyment of food now. I also think if I were to eat those chicken wings now, I wouldn't think of them as a nostalgic food because I think a lot of that was about being with family Mm -hmm. as well 
So just eat, if I was in Nando's eating some chicken wings on my own, I don't think it would have the same effect. Okay, so Jordan Terizi did an experiment, an experiment called Chicken Soup Really Is Good For The Soul. Comfort food fulfills the need to belong. So two experiments support the hypotheses that comfort foods are associated with relationships and alleviate loneliness. So perhaps you're incorrect and actually eating Nando's by yourself would alleviate your loneliness of being away from your family. <laughs> you don't need them. You've got Nando's. Well, there is, there's loads of stuff to do with when you eat together. That is a performative action that is a boundary making or like reinforces boundaries. So when you eat with people, that's like, I'm comfortable with you. If you eat something that people, someone's made for you, that's like you're accepting a gift from them. Mm -hmm. That's like something that strengthens your relationship. It's all about like commensality and eating together. So when you eat together, you're inside a social sphere and the people, the rest of the world, the people that you're not eating with are outside of that. So that's why family meals, a lot of people think they're really important because every time you eat together, the idea of, you as a family unit of a social unit strengthens as opposed to the people you're not eating with the outside world. And then I guess if you are eating a specific kind of meal a lot of the time in that family unit, when you're on your own and you're eating it, mm. you'll get that same feeling. Do you have food which you associate with a certain time or a certain place? I was thinking about how, like when you went to the, the US. The only thing that I can really remember eating there is this burger that because we went to this place that was on Manabee food and it was this burger that had three beef patties and then on either side instead of bread it had a cheese toasty <laughs> and then we had to share it between three people <gasps> but yeah you, you don't generally eat that and you're like oh yeah this triple burger with cheese toast on either side really reminds me of America <laughs> just <laughs> the one thing kidney beans kind of remind me of Glastonbury because for breakfast we would have when we went, we would just have kidney beans with some, like, passata and basil in it, and that would be breakfast. Nice. So this kind of remind me of that. But not really. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I eat a lot of the same foods at a lot of different moments. Mm. I don't know if there's ever been something that I ate at some point that I always associated with that place mm. or time. That isn't, like, a childhood nostalgia yeah, yeah. thing. I don't really know. Do you have any? Yeah, I was just thinking, I'm not, like, um, first year of uni was a lot of pastas with, you know, those um, tins where you get sauce and a bit of meat in it. So it was like, is- chicken and white sauce in a tin. Oh, no. That's so grim. Like, what, why? I don't understand as well why you would buy that. Why wouldn't you just get, like, a jar of pesto or, like, a normal sauce in a jar? you got to get your nutrients. you got to get that protein. Chicken and a, and a can. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah it was a, it's like a pie in a can why why not just buy a pie yeah it was um yeah um I, I think actually i think i maybe bought it once to try it out and then everyone in my flat was so repulsed by it that i kind of kept buying it because i thought it was just amusing <laughs> that this would become like my sort of thing then what else did i do a lot i suppose yeah, i guess it's i was thinking in terms of like you're saying food i don't think changes as rapidly it's not like something like music where you, I can tell you exactly what I was listening to where I was. Yeah. But, but less so with food, maybe. 
yes, that's true. Like, you're like, oh, when I was 14 and I was doing this, I remember I was listening to the song. But then you continue to eat the same foods. There's not new, brand new foods being made and then you stop eating the foods that you previously ate. Yeah. It's like your musical taste changes more rapidly than your palate. Yeah. And there's a less of a change in the industry. It's slower. Like a jacket potato, you're always going to eat. That's that's a memory I have a uni. Jacket potato, a mate taught me how to, I say taught me, it's not the most sophisticated thing, like to do like a grid, to cut a grid on top of my jacket potato. And then I kind of like press it in when I finish with it and it kind of spurts into a beautiful flower. What were you doing before that? Forking it. Oh, I never even considered the forking way. Yeah. But my, yeah, my dad used to do the cross and then the... But then sometimes it's not that convenient because you burn your fingers. Yeah, definitely. I remember, I remember coming home and showing my family and it was like the most impressive thing that anyone ever says. Oh, get mad. He's oh, come from uni, learning all new things. <laughs> <laughs> I normally do it with Nando sauce. Nando sauce tends to be the main thing that I've just put to stuff. Like the piri piri sauce. Yeah. Bash that on. Yeah, my brother loves that. Just makes everything taste the same though a little bit. Yeah, but when you've got such a good flavour. <laughs> do you need variants when you've got the best flavour? When, when in your back catalogue all the flavours are like not. <laughs> yeah, it was like if, if I was going to go for a run, would I want to run as Usain Bolt or someone who's not Usain Bolt? I would pick Usain Bolt every time. And then that's, that's the Nando's. The Nando's very, very. So I quit Facebook after I left uni. Yeah. Because of an article I read called Why Generation Y Yuppies Are Unhappy by Tim Urban. <laughs> Basically, it was just like, I'm going to butcher it, but this idea that um, our genera- sorry, our parents' generation, they grew up and they had sort of reasonable expectations. They exceeded their expectations because of the economic growth. Our generation comes along. We've got these super high expectations. We can't reach them. And equally, then things like social media people present their best versions of themselves. And then even I'm already feeling shit about the fact that I've not reached where I thought I should get. And then I see John from school who I haven't spoken to for fucking years and he was always a bit of a twat. And he's like living the life, eating tiramisu. <laughs> Do you think it's helped? Do you think you're happier? I think I, I am. But if I, I, almost, I almost hate saying it because I feel like people who leave Facebook feel like they've like grown big beards and like come back enlightened and like want to sort of like tell the masses about what they've learned. But maybe you're just like in a happier place in your life anyway. Maybe, but I think this is where it turns into therapy. The thing where I think I've gone too far. So when I was on Facebook, if I was going out, I'd make a point of getting in a photo so that people would know that I was out. Really? Or, or perhaps even do something specifically so that it would come up on my fingers having done it. Right, okay. But now that I don't have that, it's freeing in the sense that I don't feel that pressure anymore. But equally, I don't do anything anymore because I don't have any pressure to do it. And I think maybe the same thing with food. If the idea of presenting your food to other people on the internet gives you pleasure, at least it's making you make that food. I've got not, not got like that drive to mm. make food. So I'm not sure if there's like, I don't know where the happy medium is. I think that is also probably quite specific to if you are the kind of person who feels like you need to take a picture of something to show that you've done it. Mm-hmm. I often forget I'm at restaurants and I don't take any pictures of them afterwards. I'm like, oh, maybe I should have done that. But, and especially with Facebook, I've not really been like that. But also you can get an app that gets rid of your newsfeed. So then you don't have to look at other people, but then you can still like for events and for messaging Mm. people. And then you can still do stuff because people invite you to things. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm quite with like so gigs. I always make a point. I never take photos of gigs just because I feel like the people who do the other extreme and just record it the whole way through, mm. like it just gets on my nerves. Yeah. I feel like I'm able to like live in the moment more, maybe, but I never really get to the moment a lot yeah. <laughs> with food. <laughs> I've only started to recently taking pictures of food that I eat when I'm at restaurants. I used to feel like cripplingly embarrassed. Like I wouldn't take my phone out in case they thought I was taking a picture of the food. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, I can't do that. But now because everyone does it, it's kind of okay. Mm-hmm. At this restaurant I went to with Lily the other day, they had this, we thought this was ridiculous. So the table was about a bit smaller than this. And there was a drawer at the side of the table which you can pull out and there's a menu in there for your eating, but there's also three adapters for an iPhone, <laughs> a HTC and an Android, and then like a charger for you to charge your phone away while you're at dinner. And it was just like, this is this is too much. So trying to corner that like <laughs> millennial Instagram disposable income professional market, mm-hmm. but just felt it felt a bit cynical. Yeah. And just also very silly. But Food is funny because if it's restaurants, sometimes it's really good when you see your friends have gone to eat somewhere exciting. You're like, oh, where is that? Because it's somewhere you can go. I don't know if thinking, oh, no, I need to post, I need to do something so that I can post it on Instagram. I don't think I ever really feel like that. Mm-hmm. But, oh, sorry, you can call me shallow. That's fine. If that's- <laughs> <laughs> I've got really into Myers-Briggs recently. Into who? Myers-Briggs, those, the personality test, when it gives you like 16 personalities. Oh, uh, okay. Maybe it's your personality type. What, do you know needy? What, do you know what it is? No. I reckon you're an I... I've been told I'm a Samantha. I-N-T... Maybe you're an INTP. What does that mean? Introverted, intuiting, thinking, and perceiving. That sounds quite nice. <laughs> I mean, the fact that we've got microphones in front of us, I think it shows that I'm a bit needy. Yeah. That I'm sort of craving people's sort of validation. I don't think any of those is like a needy thing. But at the end, this one, which is like turbulent or assertive. So it's turbulent it would be like the needy part, I think. Yeah. We had, at uni, we had um, a memes page or a jokes page for the, for the uni. Mm. And I remember I did one on there and it got like, I mean, thousands of likes, thousands. <laughs> you put such like a pleased expression on your face at this point. But it was, <laughs> it was probably the happiest time of my life. <laughs> Just seeing that number go up and everyone getting like a bit of a thrill. <laughs> that is quite nice. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe then in your head you were trying to recreate, recreate your like high yeah. the whole time. But I, with this, I was like, it's still, if I get a listen, I'm like, <laughs> that's that fills that need that hole inside me well it's nice for to make things and for it to feel like other people are enjoying those things that you make mm-hmm. i think that's a very human thing to want and then instagram and social media makes that into a very quick process where you don't have to put much effort into what you are making to get that validation and probably that's why people like it so much yeah so um Baby boomers all around the country and world told their Gen Y kids they could be whatever they wanted to be, instilling the special protagonist identity deep within their psyches. So that constant, like, you're special. I remember that constantly through school. Do you? I I really disagree with that. But I also just had a really, as a small child, I had a massive self-assurance because I went to a small primary school, so Mm. I was at the top of my classes. So as a kid, you're just like, you know 
you kind of think you know you're really good and you don't need self-assurance. Mm. There was this one time apparently where I was in like year two or year three and my parents were asking me what was my favourite subject at school and I said SATs. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, I sort of like twisted like so I could compete with everyone else. Mm. But I have, I don't have that many memories about that kind of thing apart from one, which was when I was like 14 um, and I was doing like youth theatre and I was in the school play and I said to my mum, I think I want to be an actor. And my mum was like, you can't do that. Like the opposite of like, she was like, you can't do that. And I was like, why not? And then she was like, because there are no mixed race actresses. And I was like, well, that's just nothing about my acting skill. And then I was like, yeah, there are. And she said, name some. So I said, Halle Berry. <laughs> and she's like, okay, name another. And then I said, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And she's like, she's Welsh. <laughs> and that was, I was like, oh, okay. You've got a point. But then that was the only time I remember being told, you can't do this, but I also don't have any memories of being like, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, see, the, the latter, that's all my memory of, of school. Special. I remember school assemblies pretty much being like, you're all special. You can all like go out and do whatever mm. you want. And I guess that also like getting decent grades, you expect, you keep expecting to be the best. And then when you don't, when you go into the real world, they don't actually mean anything. And it's difficult to try and capture that sense of, yeah, I guess entitlement, maybe. Mm. I always thought just for myself that it was incredibly important to do something that you love doing. And I think growing up, I have realized that not everyone has the opportunity to do what you love doing. You can't, not everyone can. Like, as long as you can do something that you don't hate mm. now, that's, this is the stage I'm at. That's what I think is important. But I had always kind of thought, you would be able to do something that you loved rather than being like, I can do anything. And then I've come had to realise that you can't do that and that is a kind of entitlement in itself. Yeah, there was in that article, I can't remember the phrases. Oh, I can't remember the phrase, but basically they were on the, the idea of getting a job that could pay the bills. Like getting a, a steady job was like the main thing. And the amount of times that people looked for that or the times that use has gone down and the idea of following your dreams went up and you have this mixture of expectations going up of being able to follow your dreams. And the idea of having a stable job is no longer being something that was deemed desirable or good enough. Yeah. I remember being about, probably when I was like 21, 22, and I was like, okay, I just want to have something, a job I can go to every day and not not hate it, not get wake up and thinking like, oh, Jesus Christ, what am I doing? Mm. Just like it fulfilling some of my needs. So like some social needs or some creative needs, but it doesn't, there's no way it can be everything that I would want it to be. Mm. I had like such diminishing returns of expectations over the course of a few years. I remember, I don't know, like secondary school being like, I think I'm probably going to be the greatest film director who's ever lived. <laughs> That's probably what I'm on course for. And then I was like, I guess a few years later, like, probably just a very good one. Probably, <laughs> probably just one Oscar, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and then not actually putting any effort into that. And then sort of get further on and being like, I'd quite like to vaguely work in film. I'd quite like to get up in the morning in some capacity yeah yeah. and um also the the thing i also realized was i was always so concerned so when you in school when everyone made like their short films they're all shit i mean mine was a masterpiece but they were were, very intp (laughs) but they were all like no one's no one is skilled so everyone makes a piece of crap and i always disliked having to do that because i always felt like i don't even want to make something that was good and it was only years later that I realized that you actually have to make the shit stuff in order to get good. You don't just turn up one day 
and be good. Yeah. I feel like I wasted all that time just waiting for the opportunity to make Citizen Kane when it's actually I should have been making some more shit. Yeah. It's realizing the first time that you do something, it's never going to be good. And that's completely okay. And then you, from that point, it's only going to get better. So you just have to start making stuff as soon as possible, really. And then just keep going. Don't think, oh, no, this is awful. I can't. I shouldn't be doing this. Because mm. it's going to be bad. The first time anyone's done anything that's been shitty. Yeah, Will has this theory that the first time you do something, if it's something you're going to continue doing, you will have some level of success at it. And then afterwards, it will go straight down. And then you have to build your way back up again. And then you will get to a point where you will be able to achieve that first level of success or feeling like the amount of success you perceived you have had at a constant level. And then it's from there that you start to get, you become good at that thing yeah. after that point. Isn't the same thing with like knowledge? Like if you want to learn, say I want to learn about cooking. After I've read a couple, I was going to say books, I'm not going to read books. <laughs> after I've read a couple like, internet articles that I've googled <laughs> I suddenly feel like I know everything about cooking now and then when I learn a bit more I suddenly realize the chasm of stuff that I don't know and suddenly my confidence drops yeah and then like you say you have to build yourself back up to kind of you realize that you just don't know anything about the subject like I still feel like I don't know about restaurants mm-hmm. I just know that like how much is out there yeah but I think that's a sign of knowing that you, you've got past that first yeah. point of like the fact <laughs> that you I don't know anything. Yeah, the fact that you know that you don't know anything yeah. I think shows that you know more. Because I imagine even like the most knowledgeable people on any subject would feel that they don't know. Yeah, because they know what the potential is. Mm. But it's really, it's when I'm like, oh God, do I want to work in TV anymore? Maybe I want to be a food writer. Like that's, I like, I love writing. I love eating. Yeah. Like I love going to restaurants. And then I'm just like, I can't do that. I don't know anything about restaurants and food. But then... You have to, at some point, put it in proportion and be like, well, you know, there's more than some people. You did, you did like a food blog at uni, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, like a, just a blog. Yeah. Well, I think the line between journalism and blogs is pretty thin now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Did you not get pleasure from doing that? Is that not? Yeah. Or, or was, that your, is that, was that your shit thing that you had to do to get better? Yeah, I went and read it recently and I was like, that was awful. But at the time I was like, this is so good. <laughs> this is really hilarious. <laughs> Even listening back to some of the episodes of this I've done, there's times when I listen and I was like, God, I've, I completely disagree with what I was saying there. Like, I, Or like more often there'll be times where I feel like I've conveyed something very clearly and I'll listen back to him and be like, I, from listening to me back, I think I was saying the opposite to what I actually meant. And it's been quite an interesting thing to learn about communication and how poor I am at it. Yeah. And so I need to get better at that as well. Something over the past few years as well I've also realised about communication is that it is harder to say what I'm trying to say than I think it is because I've spent my whole life around people who are similar to me, who have Mm. the same frames of reference. Mm. You go to a university with people who are kind of on your level you live with people who you it's so easy for you to talk to them Mm. you can not even finish a whole sentence you can get your words wrong and you almost don't realize it because you're communicating so efficiently and then going into a workplace and then talking to people who come from completely different backgrounds and i say something and they're like what what was that and i'm like oh wow i didn't have there was nothing in that sentence that said what I was trying to say mm. 
But I know that if I was at home and said that to my flatmate, they would get it. Yeah. And it's having to learn to how to actually have meaning in your sentences. I don't know. Mm. I read a book about um, nonviolent communication and I tried to take on the principles of it for a while, but then I shall never go get it. What's nonviolent communication? What is violent communication? And is communication always one of the two or are there other things in the middle? So I would direct you to what say matters. <laughs> <laughs> what we say matters by Judith Hansen Lassiter and Ike K. Lassiter. Okay, so the four components of nonviolent communication are observation. So that's what happened, what is the facts? And that's instead of evaluating, judging, interpreting, diagnosing. So it was something on the lines of, if I remember correctly, if you've got a, a teenager who's left their room dirty, you wouldn't say your room is messy. You'd say all this stuff is on the floor mm. because you're make, cause what I determine as being messy could be different from what their perception is. So by banking an observation rather than an evaluation, yes. we're more clearly communicating. That's like... In the language of Myers-Briggs, <laughs> that's <laughs> becoming more sensing than intuiting. So the second one, so I'm an ENFP, okay. so the N one is intuiting, which is what I think you are. And that is when you see things thinking, that's messy, or you're not sensing is looking at the, or f- sensing the environment, and that's exactly how you perceive things to be around you. Mm-hmm. Like those things are on the floor, whereas we would be. That's messy. Mm-hmm. So that book very useful for intuitors. Well, so once you've done your observation, you then go to feeling. So emotion or body sensation, feedback our needs. And that's instead of giving your thoughts, beliefs or opinions. What's an example of that? I can't remember if this is a good example or a bad example. I'll come to that. I'll come back to that. <laughs> so then the third one is your needs. So oh God, life in action, universal qualities. Language that connects to life energy. We're getting pretty out there now. Language that connects to life energy. An internal experience independent of externals. Oh my God. And then we go to a request. So I think there's a... We've got lots of different good words that we need to use. I think there's a a framework which I remember trying to use. Let me see if I can find it. Just keep seeing why approval hurts. I'm going to bookmark that for later. (laughs) Why approval hurts. I wish I'd never got a thousand likes on that meme. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know back then how what a profound effect it would have on the rest of my yeah. life just searching for that that thrill. <laughs> it's probably like when you people are love addicts, it's like like adrenaline and dopamine thing they're addicted to. Well, getting uh, the likes. Marianne Fisher in the relationship between sex and food says that when you first meet someone and are completely infatuated, often you lose your sense of hunger. Our bodies produce a chemical stimulant, phenylethylamine, PEA, as well as norepinephrine. They make our bodies alert, alive, giddy, excited, and many of us lose our appetite. That's interesting. I wonder if that's like, so apparently when you go to the gym afterwards, you're not hungry as well. Hmm. And then you feel more alert as well. So maybe that's the same thing. Okay. Oh, sorry. I was going to say maybe it's, because if you're a little monkey in the jungle and then you become like infatuated with another monkey, it stops you from being distracted when you see like a banana in the tree. <laughs> you're going to go for that other monkey and mate instead of. But don't you need both? You can't just mate all day and not eat. Well, yeah, but you can't 
be distracted and go off and eat a banana and then your chance is gone. She's not going to hang around. She's a monkey. <laughs> so uh, this, I'm not sure this is quite what I wanted, but um, so practicing self-expression. So say you've said something that's upset me. Mm. In response to that, I think I might be butchering this. So don't take this, don't go take this into the real world because okay. it might end really badly. When I hear you say that and I've, I quote back to you what I heard you say so that there's no like miscommunication. So when I hear you say that my lasagna tastes like shit. Yeah. I feel, and I've got a choice of words of how I feel. I feel full of dread. So now, now you understand how your comments made me feel. Yes. Because my need for belonging is not met. So I made that lasagna so that I feel like I belonged and then See. people said it tastes like shit. And now you've got an understanding of, why well, you might have thought you were just telling me, obviously, that I'll Giving lasagna. you some constructive criticism. Yeah. Um, would you be willing to, and then I have a request, teach me how to make a better lasagna? <laughs> oh, that's quite yeah. nice. And so we've got a clear understanding of where each other's coming from. and You've got a positive resolution. Yeah. And I guess there's a section, which I don't know if falls into here, but it was the idea of, Say we've got a difference of opinion. I have to try and invent a reason for why you feel that way to have empathy for you, even if it's not true. Like just keep thinking of ways that you can have that way. And eventually I have so much empathy for you that I then have empathy for myself. I don't quite know. It was quite interesting. I have to read this book again. That bit's interesting. So what do they think is violent communication? Is that acting as if your reactions, how you think you would feel about something is how they feel? Like, just projecting your own. So there's, this section's called enemy images. So when you're in conflict with someone and you tell yourself negative judgments about them, these enemy images leak out and colour the interaction. Mm. Whatever I think of you will influence my body language, my expression, and my words. And you will sense these judgments. Even if I don't express these with words, connection will be difficult, if not impossible. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, I'm trying to get better at it. Being, I sometimes can be a bit... Um, come down quite hard on people and i found like the times when actually i've been able to not change someone's opinions but i guess like have more of a conversation with someone who we have had different opinions has always come from a position of like love and affection like that's the only times when it's actually i've changed or when that other person has changed because it doesn't feel like an attack like there's that whole thing of like internet debates if i say something like i think a is really good and then you say, nah, hey, hey shit, mate. And I'm, then I suddenly, like, I have to dig into my opinion and fight you and I'm not actually looking for any nuance. Yeah, instead of thinking, well, why might they feel opposed to my opinion? Yeah, I think meditation is good for that as well. Because it is that thing about you are... So the thing is about you, like, being present in an environment, but I think that stops you from judging situations in a certain way of concluding certain things before you really think about actually that's not what's going on this is what's what is here so i think that's meant to be good for it i always try to say to myself i'm going to do more meditation but i don't get around to it yes yeah, so it's something i've never I've, i did yoga a little bit at uni and i found that really helpful but i've never actually gone back mm. to it i have this theory that yoga is good for you because it is making something but with your body so it's like relaxing. My main memory of doing yoga was that the instructor and like the main other person who 
so they were like facing each other were like these two super hot people <laughs> and I feel like they must have been like fucking because like they had this energy that like was just sparking off them and I can imagine them just like going home and not even like touching each other but just having like a, an amazing time <laughs> it was just like, it was everyone felt it in the room it was it was felt like we were almost like a bit dirty as being there it was sort of like we were intruding on someone's what private. a weird experience to have yeah it was yeah if only I was eating at the time then it would have been a comfort food <laughs> Do you think that's because they're more like in tune with their bodies or just because that's what the kind of people they are? Probably both. <laughs> they were just magical people. Just... <laughs> so impressive. Is that all of the questions that you had? I've got, I had two more bullet points. So my bullet, one bullet point was to try and link it back to the morpheme of like crushers was to talk about probably the main cinematic moment of spaghetti is from Lady and the Tramp. Oh, do you think so? I was going to say blue is the warmest colour. I've seen that, but what happened in that? There's a big bit where... What are the two girls called? What are the main characters called? Oh. I can't remember. But the one one of them goes over to the girl with blue hairs for dinner and mm-hmm. all of her family around there. And they have a big thing of pasta. Mm-hmm. And it's all they're all sharing it and they're like inviting her into the family and she feels very welcomed. And then I think the girl with the blue hair goes to her families and... They don't know that she likes women mm-hmm. and it's a much more closed off affair and the dinner's very different and it was just, there's two like very specific contrasts. Mm. So you think that's, that film was using the social aspect of spaghetti to its utmost? Definitely, yeah. Your film example is much more sophisticated than mine, although I do think mine's probably more iconic, <laughs> The Lady of the Tramp scene. I don't think I've seen Lady and the Tramp, so... I mean, I, I mean that's interesting then because then maybe you would have had a completely different association with spaghetti. That's true. Because the way I was going to phrase this question was, while the, most of the world was contemplating, is it okay to find an animated dog sexy? You <laughs> were questioning <laughs> about whether pasta or spaghetti was a crush in this context. Mm, but if I had seen it, I bet that is what I would have been thinking. But alas, that's, now I've got no ending. <laughs> <laughs> but I am... Um, especially captivated by food in films and in literature. I find it gives one of the best senses of place and of how the social groups interact with each other in them. So what would be a good example? So in Murakami novels, he has a lot of stuff about food and it's like very Japanese. It's like all of the little bits and he describes when they're making it and if people go out for meals, he always describes it. That's really good. But I also found stuff like, I think in Call Me By Your Name, there were a lot of dinner party scenes where there's lots of bits where people were around a table and they were eating little bits. Mm-hmm. And the peach. And the Oh, yeah, and the peach. Apparently in the book he eats the peach, though. Afterwards. Yeah. And so people were outraged that he didn't eat the peach. I'm glad they didn't make him eat the peach afterwards. I think that was a good tutorial move. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay in a book, but you don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. I, don't think I can't recall a film sex scene that involves spaghetti. The I think it'd be quite difficult because yeah. it's just like strands. But you can't really have sex with. Can you like throw the bowl on someone? <laughs> like onto their body? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, pour sauce on them, I guess. Maybe this is going to be your Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe I was right. Maybe I needed to wait for that perfect idea. Yeah. <laughs> and now that I have it, I can go out and make. Mm. But, um,. That is all my bullet points. Have you got anything else profound to say about spaghetti? I don't think so. I love spaghetti. Mm-hmm.
That's the crush bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Nice. Well, um, cheers for doing this, Anna. That's all right. No problem.